Hi, Veggie Mates. Welcome back to the Veg Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is episode number 83 with the co-founder of Advancing Law for Animals, Vanessa Shakib. It has been a while since we dove into the world of animal law. Our episode with Harvard professor Chris Green went live all the way back in late 2018, so I'm pretty excited to revisit the topic. Uh, that was number episode 14, if you'd like to check it out. So I'm stoked to bring you this conversation with Vanessa. We hear from her on a number of topics, including uh, some specific cases in which she has been involved. The first one is versus the USDA, and the second versus uh, the University of Southern California. Uh, the latter of the two is still pending, so I'll keep you all updated as we learn more. Uh, if you're like me and struggle with the complexities of legal cases and jargon, then I think you'll really appreciate this episode. Vanessa was extremely patient with my questioning and happy to provide plenty of context surrounding the cases. So I hope you come out of the other side of this chat with a firm understanding of the two cases we're covering. You can find more info on Advancing Law for Animals at advancinglawforanimals.org and their Instagram and Facebook pages. Please go and support uh, their fantastic work in whichever way you can. Now, let's get into it. I'll catch you all on the other side to wrap things up. All right, everyone. Today, we are here with Vanessa Shakib of Advancing Law for Animals. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to join you this morning. Yeah, and I'm really psyched that you were able to make the time. Uh, I feel like I reached out to you quite a few months ago now about initially having a, an interview. And now I'm getting my momentum back and I'm, I'm really happy to to have you on the show because we've got some fascinating topics and cases uh, to chat about. Uh, before we get into those, I would love to hear just a little bit about you personally, where you grew up, where you're from, uh, your experiences growing up, and yeah, just basically how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'm from Los Angeles. I live in Los Angeles currently. I did a few year detour living in Washington, DC, but I'm a Los Angelina at heart. Um, my background, let's see, I began practicing law in 2012. All the while I've had a growing, 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 growing passion for animals. And so it all culminated in 2018 when I left a very secure, very promising job at a reputable firm to co-found and co-direct a nonprofit law firm for animals. Cool. That's really cool. So what were you previously doing um, in law? What was your specialty? I've had a variety of practice areas, but most recently prior to animal law, I specialized in consumer protection. That's very broad and it encompassed all kinds of things from illegal taxes to illegal advertising. And so within that practice area, I had a lot of experience suing both local governments as well as Fortune 500 corporations. Okay. So quite a range in, in who you're dealing with there. Yeah. And that range has really benefited me today because animal law is 
is very broad, right? There's so many different kinds of animals and they're exploited in so many different kinds of ways by so many different kinds of actors. And at the same time, animals themselves do not have standing to file a lawsuit. And so you really have to get creative and you really have to adapt to different scenarios. And so I think having a specialty in consumer protection uh, really prepared me for this practice. That's cool. Yeah. Speaking of creativity, I think we can probably chat about that in the the USC case. Uh, there was, and it just seemed interesting me interesting to me that the grounds for that case were competition. Right. I, I found that interesting. So we can we can definitely chat chat about that later in the show. Um, what was the, I suppose, what was the catalyst for you uh, becoming vegan? Uh, just like you know, personally, in terms of your your eating choices, uh, the way you lead your life. And then secondly, was there a moment where you remember that uh, you just thought that it, it was time to, you know, use the skill set uh, that you had acquired through study and practice and really apply that uh, to starting your own practice uh, for, uh, you know, advancing law for animals? It's it's really cool that you've made that decision. As you said, it was a secure job you left and that's always difficult. Yeah, thank you. So my vegan journey, we need to get into a time machine and set the dial to the year 2007. The month was November. I was at my parents' house for Thanksgiving break and I had a friend who was vegan and he was one of those stereotypically very, very annoying vegans. I remember we went to lunch at California Pizza Kitchen. I was eating a chicken salad. He was the kind of person who would sit there and say, that's disgusting. How could you eat that? And at that time, being a carnist, I thought that that was super obnoxious. And I did an internal calculus. My friend you know, give so much that I'll tolerate how annoying this is. So that was my sort of mind frame. And for whatever reason, my friend Justin, it was the day before Thanksgiving, he said, this documentary that I love is on, will you watch it? And it's super funny because in my head, I thought, here he goes again, he is so annoying. But for whatever reason, I tuned in and I watched that documentary. And it was the first time that I was really exposed to the reality of factory farming. Even being a college student at the time at the University of Southern California, I really hadn't had that education. And so I remember watching it and thinking just very clearly, this is wrong. And so the next day I rolled up to Thanksgiving with a three bean salad. And that was the beginning of that journey. I was going to say, how did that affect Thanksgiving? You know, you've got a family that are probably fully expecting you to come and partake in the, the regular festivities. And then you rock up with a three bean salad. And I'm assuming you fielded some questions that day. I think at that time, my family did just thought it was a phase or, you know, I think so often in life, families think, oh, this person is going through a temporary loss of mind. Um, but yes, now almost 14 years later, a nonprofit law firm for animals later, certainly not a phase. 
yeah, def- definitely. You've uh, you've you've shown that to be true for sure. And I'm just that, doubling down, actually. So. Right, a hundred percent. So uh, after you know, after practicing since what 2012. So mm-hmm. um, you know, you've been practicing for quite a while at that point. What was the the moment there where you just had to leave the law firm you were working for, and you know, really combine passion with skill set? So this is a complicated question, and I I know somewhat of your journey based on what I've read about you on your website, so maybe some of this will resonate. When you are in a position in life that your society, your culture, your family, all thinks is a good position, it's very hard if you're not happy there because you believe that you should be. And you judge yourself for not being. And what happens is super insidious because it's a very slow, creeping depression of doing something generally valued that you don't feel in your heart is what you should be doing. So I think it really was a culmination. um, And that sort of pressure cooker had to keep turning up and up and up. And at the same time, I had to keep learning more about myself and doing harder things in life, generally speaking, to say, oh, wait, hey, I can do more than I ever thought I could do. I could do more than I ever thought that I'm capable of. And so it really was a timing. And I'm thankful for that timing because I developed great skills as a litigator. I learned from the best. I learned from the partners under whom I worked. I learned from my co-counsel and my colleagues. So it all worked out as life often does that I obtained a really great skill set, and I just needed the time to build the awareness and the confidence to take that skill set and apply it in a new way. Beautiful. Yeah. I think when you're in those situations and you're living them, uh, it can sometimes feel unbearable or it gets to that point where it's unbearable. However, yeah, what you might not be able to see in those moments is exactly what you're talking about. The, um, you know, the, the influence that these people are having on you, the, the life scenarios that you're in every day, how they're helping you for the future. And now you're, you know, totally ready. And I'm sure there's new challenges in front of you now that you have to overcome, but you are ready to to now do what you're doing. Uh, and I, I don't know, I'm assuming it feels, it feels pretty good to be uh, helping, helping animals uh, in the way that you are. Thank you. I will say the growth never stops. Mm-hmm. Um, and running a nonprofit law firm is, at the end of the day, like running a business, you know, the lights need to stay on. We need to exist. There has to be some amount of dollars and cents that work. And so this is really an entrepreneurial hat on top of an advocacy hat. And so that has been a whole other very broad learning experience. And I'm thankful that I'm able to wake up and give it my best every day. Totally. And where are we at with animal law? Like, is it a, you know, how long has, how long have people been advocating for animals as lawyers? How long have they been standing up for change and is it continually growing? I'm, you know, I, I really don't know a heap about it. I've spoken with Chris Green uh, from Harvard, 
Um, that was much earlier in the, in the life of this podcast. And I'm assuming since then, things have changed uh, quite a bit. That was probably nearly, nearly two and a half years ago. Yeah, so if we think about it, animals have always existed in the law because animals are considered property. So throughout the history of our legal system, there have been legal disputes involving who owns this cattle, right? Because a cattle is considered property instead of being thought of as an individual, a cow. Um, or similarly, there's been disputes about wild animals stepping onto property. You know, there's ownership issues there. And so the history of animals in the law has been one of property rights. When you get into, I believe the 1970s is when, as I recall, we first start seeing this idea of impact litigation for animals, which is to say, we're not gonna have legal stats about who owns whom and who's responsible for what property damage. We're actually gonna use litigation to think creatively about how can we obtain some kind of systemic or policy improvement for animals with the law. And so that's a way different ball game than simply, I own this animal, you own that animal. Definitely, definitely. And I think from what I saw, the, the animal, animal Welfare Act, which we're about to chat about, was 1966, the first time that was brought into law 1966 I'm, I'm pretty sure Correct. and I think it's had amendments since um, so it's continually being looked at which is I suppose a positive thing however as we're about to learn some of the amendments and things that have been brought in are kind of questionable such as this teachable moments rule and right, right. Um, self-reporting rules and you know just I think just from hearing that it's like it's obvious where uh, where this kind of goes from a business standpoint so let's chat about that Um, this case is now settled uh, but let's go back to the beginning of it was it 20 2019 uh, advancing law for animals was acting on behalf of uh, two groups in Missouri and what yeah, how, how does it all work for you uh, in this case? Yeah, so we represented two different watchdog organizations. The first is uh, Stop Animal Exploitation Now, called SANE, and the second is Missouri Alliance in Animal Legislation. So SANE is a laboratory watchdog group, and MAL is a puppy mill watchdog group. And so in order to understand why we have these two different groups, let's take a step back and let's think about the Animal Welfare Act. So the Animal Welfare Act is a federal law that sets minimum, emphasis on minimum, standards of care for various groups of animals, not all animals, but groups included under its reach are animals held in experimentation, subject to certain exceptions, as well as puppy mills, as well as animals in exhibition. So think roadside zoos uh, and a couple others. And so because the Animal Welfare Act sets standards for these different groups of animals and those regulations are varying by groups of animals, 
in order to make our lawsuit as strong as possible, we wanted to have clients dealing with these different groups of animals. Got it. And something I've kind of been fascinating about, fascinated about is the, the way in which these acts are enforced. So you've got two groups, two watchdog groups here. How do they become privy to information that exposes organizations such as the USDA? How, yeah. Great question. So there's a couple of ways, but I'll share one significant way. So in the United States, we have a federal law called the Freedom of Information Act. It's called FOIA for short. Under FOIA, we as citizens are entitled to request certain documents from the government, which are deemed to be public. Now, of course, there's exceptions to the rule, right? We can't submit a FOIA request and get the nuclear codes. So there are exceptions to this rule, but generally speaking, there is a lot that is available. So what we see happens is sometimes the government receives a request and doesn't want to fulfill the request. So the requester then has a legal right to sue the government for wrongfully withheld documents. And so there's a whole body of law around requesters seeking information under the Freedom of Information Act. And animal watchdog organizations are often using FOIA to obtain different information, correspondence, even pictures and videos from different federal agencies. Got it. And are these, you know, whether it's a puppy mill or a laboratory, in their own self-reporting, is this how it's coming up? Is this how, you know, let's say they self-report uh, that an animal wasn't uh, treated to the standard of, of the Animal Welfare Act, whether it's like food or, um, you know, enclosures where they're kept. Is, is this information what we're getting our hands on? Good question. So let's take a step back and talk about some context so that we can better explore some of these issues. Mm -hmm. So the Animal Welfare Act is enforced by the United States Department of Agriculture. So the United States Department of Agriculture has a subdivision called Animal Care. Animal Care has inspectors. So these inspectors are going out to these facilities that have licenses to hold animals under the Animal Welfare Act. And when they perform their inspection, they write up something called an inspection report. So that inspection report is going to have information about violations documented by the inspector. Now I say violations documented by the inspector because the inspector may not write up every violation. And so that is one of the core issues in our lawsuit. And so taking a step back, inspection reports have been available. Uh, the history of their availability is uh, is interesting. Uh, initially, advocates had to request for them under the Freedom of Information Act. They later became available online. At some point, the records were taken offline uh, in an information blackout. They were subsequently put back online. And so 
Today, you can go online to the USDA animal care public search tool, and you can pull these inspection reports as well as other information. If you submit an additional request to a federal agency, you can get some more information. For example, perhaps written correspondence about the facility in question or other kinds of documents that are not an inspection report, but may relate to the inspection report. And so there's a lot of moving parts. And so if you're an advocate, you really have your work cut out for you because you really need to have your hand all over the place to get a total picture of what's happening and not to complicate matters, but aside from our ability to request records under a federal law, different states have state public document request laws. And so if you're trying to get a handle on the space, there's a lot of different tools at your disposal. Um, whistleblowers are also obviously a great source of information for advocates. Okay, so I've gone on a tangent, but this is sort of big picture. What is the information available? I appreciate it. I appreciate the tangent because it gives me a much clearer understanding of you know, of what ground you're operating on. So let's say facility A, right? Hmm. How often are they subject to an inspection? No, not enough. And I will say now in the case of laboratories, the laboratory may be subject to different schemes because if you are a laboratory conducting experimentation, of certain kinds of animals, you're going to need a license under the Animal Welfare Act. Plus, if you are a laboratory receiving taxpayer subsidies for your experimentation, you are now subject to the National Institutes of Health and those animal welfare policies. So this sets the stage for our lawsuit regarding self-reporting because before we dive into the facts around the self-reporting incentive, let's talk about self-reporting generally so we can understand where the common sense falls. So if I am a laboratory and I'm receiving taxpayer funds for my animal experimentation, as a condition of receiving those taxpayer funds, I need to report to the National Institutes of Health, my violations of animal welfare. That's a mandatory reporting requirement. Let's contrast that with the rules under the Animal Welfare Act. Facilities under the Animal Welfare Act are not facing a similar self-reporting mandate. Instead, what the USDA did is it said, hey, Although we very well could require you to report every adverse event impacting animals, we actually want to make your life easier and treat you, the business, like the consumer. So we're going to implement something called the self-reporting incentive, which means if you happen to tell us about an adverse event impacting animal welfare as a treat, as a bonus, we are going to prohibit an inspector from writing that adverse event up on your inspection report. 
And this is where we have a transparency issue. Because if the event is on the inspection report, then you and I and all of your listeners, we can go on the public search tool. We can pull the inspection report and we can see that adverse event. But when there's a rule that says, poof, the adverse event is disappeared, it cannot be on an inspection report, that means that you and I and all of your listeners cannot go seek that information. Got it. Yeah, it seems convenient. It's very convenient. And I'll go a step further and say it's extra problematic because legally speaking, we have two um, we have two bodies of law operating at any time. We have the state law and we have federal law. And that's reductive because we also have municipal and local laws. But let's say for a moment, it's simply state law and federal law. What we're seeing more and more in the puppy mill context, at least, is that states are tethering their anti-puppy mill laws to the presence or absence of federal Animal Welfare Act violations. So state laws are more and more limiting or restricting the sale of puppies from puppy mills. And in doing that, they're saying, hey, once you have a certain amount of Animal Welfare Act violations, you can't sell here or you're restricted in your sale. And so at that point, puppy mills can either say, A, let's increase our welfare, or they can say, B, let's make our citations and violations disappear so we circumvent the reach of these state laws. So there's a big balancing act happening. There's a lot of dynamics and it's again, changes between kinds of animals because different kinds of animals are uh, subject to different policy considerations, are subject to different levels of public interest, are subject to different levels of congressional scrutiny, just depending on whether it's a hot ticket issue. Um, so this is all to say it's complicated. And that's why it was so important for us to address both issues from the perspective of a laboratory watchdog organization, as well as a puppy mill watchdog organization. And given, given the information you were able uh, to summon, what, what then was the next action? Actually, you know, going against the USDA, how did that play out over, was it like 18 months? It has been quite some time. My memory is a little hazy as her specific filing date. Um, but it's 20, 2019 sometime. Okay. I believe summer of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, so it's taken some time in that we've had some extensive legal briefing. So in order to challenge these rules, there's a lot of uh, technicality and a lot of legal mumbo jumbo that has to be hashed out between the parties and before the court. And so that has taken a lot of time. Um, but long story short, our legal theory challenged the self-reporting incentive as well as teachable moments as illegally enacted. We challenged a technicality. And so the, the sort of underpinnings of our legal challenge had to be briefed and we underwent that process until the parties reached a settlement, which is, is very favorable to advocates and to animals. And just before we get into to how it 
was finalized with the teachable moments thing. Is that tightly intertwined uh, with the self-reporting? Is it because they're self-reporting, they're treating it as a teachable moment rather than actually, you know, as you said, taking it down on an inspection sheet, making it available to the public and potentially avoiding any citation? So the teachable moments rule has differences, but similarities. So let's talk about the differences. The self-reporting incentive is available in all circumstances, even circumstances which implicate animal welfare, even circumstances which lead to injury or death. Now, the teachable moments rule is interesting because technically speaking on paper, it's only supposed to apply in situations which don't impact animals. So for example, a form's not filled out all the way, uh, something very technical. Um, that's how it's supposed to be applied. Now, we can get into a philosophical discussion of whether those sort of technical non-compliances should be on an inspection report or not. From the USDA's perspective, they're claiming that they want to emphasize education over enforcement. If it's a minor issue that doesn't have to do with animals, then that doesn't need to be written up in the same way. The problem with the teachable moments rule is less about the written words of the rule and more about the fact that USDA was misapplying it over and over and over. So now let's talk about one of our clients, Stop Animal Exploitation Now, who is a laboratory watchdog. So our client is submitting FOIA requests to get these teachable moments to look at how they're applied and our client was seeing, oh my gosh, here is a pig in a laboratory who was subject to an experimentation. The experimenters violated an animal welfare law. They broke the protocol. The pig ended up dying. That laboratory was given a teachable moment. And so you can see the tremendous amount of work that our clients do to oversee what's happening, to blow the whistle, to alert the media, to let us know, to try and get investigations, to notify the agency, to demand that this event be re-examined and reclassified. So you can really see truly what tremendous work our clients do. Um, and all of that work informs the basis of our lawsuit. So the teachable moments rule is different because it's not supposed to apply when animals are harmed, yet it's often misapplied. But the effect is the same as the self-reporting incentive, which is that no citation is given. And they're using it to their advantage. It's uh, because it's not being applied uh, in the, the way it's meant to be. They're, they're basically twisting, twisting the rules to their advantage so they can, what, continue to operate? continue to operate and obtain the tremendous financial benefits of having a clean or cleaner inspection report. Because like we said, when we talk about puppy mills, every ding on the inspection report is a problem for puppy millers selling in states that have state law restrictions on puppy mill dogs. And was this just in Missouri? Um, the, the facilities was it just in Missouri or were they were they countrywide? Oh, I see. So states 
states and municipalities around the country are adopting anti-puppy mill legislation. And after this interview, I can send you uh, like an updated list of those. It's quite an extensive number of states. That's in response to federal inaction. So because of the federal inaction on cracking down on puppy mills, states are saying, well, we can make our own laws. So the puppy millers who have enjoyed lax federal enforcement suddenly are like, oh, wait, we have to deal with this state enforcement. And so that's how the whole problem arises. Got it. Now, I suppose in to, to the untrained person, the word settlement might not uh, you know, be synonymous with a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you settled with the USDA. However, there were definitely from what I'm reading into it, there were wins there for four animals. So let's chat about the settlement. Yep. And just to back up and talk about settlements generally, litigation is inherently risky. Even if you have a good case, you can't guarantee that you're going to win. On top of that, litigation can take years. It can involve several appeals. Who knows when the issue could be finally adjudicated? So because of the uncertainty, because of the length and time, and because of the tremendous resources that are required to keep litigation going and to finance litigation, settlement is an opportunity for both parties to come together and say, hey, we both could either win or lose. We don't know. Because of that, let's reach a resolution today. So that's how often settlements happen. And so in this case in particular, our settlement was incredibly productive and positive, um, not just for animals, but also for the public in increasing transparency. So first and foremost, we were able to knock out that self-reporting incentive. So that's no longer on the books. We were able to modify the language of the teachable moments rule so that on its face, it does not apply to instances impacting animal welfare. We were also able to, and this is exciting and very different, we were able to modify the interface of the public USDA animal welfare search tool in order to make it more obvious to advocates using the search tool when a teachable moment was issued. Finally, we were able to update inspector trainings to reflect the changes in our settlement. And we also uh, received attorney's fees and costs of $70,000 in this case. Nice. I was going to ask, like, is it, is, it in, is it even harder when you're up against someone like the USDA in terms of finances? It would seem like they have unlimited finances to keep going and going and going no matter how long you could choose for it to continue. Like if you don't want to reach a settlement, they would just happily keep throwing money at it. Is that the case? Would they, is it, are they a harder opponent? Um, Yes and no. So obviously the USDA has unlimited resources to just litigate till the very end, but at the same time, they have a lot of cases, right? And so it does make sense to resolve issues that are susceptible to resolution because at the same time, their docket is full and they have a lot that they're dealing with. From our perspective, you know, we're a nonprofit law firm for animals. So of course we have 
way less resources than the federal government. And advancing law for animals, we waived fees and costs for our clients because our clients could not pay for representation and we will never let money be the reason that advocates and animals suffer and do not get their day in court. So it, it does, advancing law for animals does face a burden um, in being able to withstand the longevity of cases. We are, of course, are committed and, and we will do that. Um, sometimes settlement makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. So yes, in a case, maybe we will be litigating for 10 years. It, that could be how some cases turn out. Gotcha. And then with the loopholes and the language that you were able to, to do something new and different in terms of change the, the actual user interface on a website, uh, this, this, is this rare? Like this is kind of new in the, in the world of like law, animal law? Um, you know, I can't say I'm aware of a similar result being reached in another case, but I'll tell you this, it was a unique resolution in this case because based on what we alleged, a judge could not have ordered USDA, change your website to make it more obvious where the teachable moments are. So it was a very unique resolution. Um, and we're thankful that we had that rapport and we're able to achieve that. Um, because to take a step back, um, thanks to the work of other advocates, teachable moments were eventually added to the public search tool beginning as of a certain date. The problem was they're stored in a different repository of the website. So if you're a user, you would have to query two different repositories of information, which number one, that takes time. But number two, many users, unless they're an expert, wouldn't know to do that. You know, I'm sure your average listener would think, let me just look at the inspection report. Who would think, oh my gosh, there are all these other violations named something else stored somewhere else and I have to do a separate search. So our resolution here makes one search, which points to all violations, whether it's classified as a teachable moment or not. And now for, this is, this is federally changed. So is that true that the teachable moments, is it the language of the teachable moments has changed and the self-reporting rule is now abolished? Is that something that all puppy mills and laboratories have to adhere to on a federal level? Yeah. So because the Animal Welfare Act is a federal law, it applies to all across the country. So any facility with an Animal Welfare Act license is implicated by our resolution. So all facilities with an Animal Welfare Act license are no longer able to receive a self-reporting incentive to evade a citation on their inspection report and hide a welfare violation from the public. Got it. And then the trickle-on effect is that because a citation appears on an inspection report, inspection report gets uploaded publicly, public access is more transparent and easier, we have better access to these moments. Correct. And it's super important, especially we're seeing, we're seeing public opinion of animal experimentation really changing. And so we have, there's so many incredible watchdog groups that are really blowing the whistle about what's happening in these labs 
And these groups need to have all information available to them. And we, the public, need to have all information available to us, particularly when we're financing this junk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's when you say we're financing it, you're talking about subsidies, taxpayer dollars. Yeah. So I recommend your listeners check out White Coat Waste Project, uh, which examines the taxpayer subsidy side of animal experimentation. It's to the tune of about $20 billion a year of our taxpayer funds paying for this. And so it's super, super shocking. And a lot of that spending is just absolutely nuts. If you check out White Coat Waste, you can see their waste of the week where they tally up, you know, the the dollar amount of totally absurd um, experiments involving animals that are not, that are not helpful. It's funny you bring that up. So next week I'm chatting with someone who works in the subsidies space. Um, I'm really looking forward to it because it's as a, I suppose, as a plant-based eater, as a vegan, as someone who's done animal rights advocacy continues to do it, um, through podcasting and and chatting with people and I'm sure my listeners it's a little bit disheartening I suppose to put a lot of effort into outreach and uh, daily practices and then hear that you know the very dollar that I'm earning Mm -hmm. is is going to uh, be used to make the lives of animals you know horrible so it's it's going to be a, i suppose a tough topic but one we need to learn about because i don't think it's really spoken about at great length yeah and i would love to follow up with you because we are um we're developing a, a subsidies report relating to animal agriculture at advancing law for animals um it's foundational for us in developing future litigation around subsidies but the bottom line is the landscape of subsidies is super complicated because there's so many pots of money moving around at so many levels in so many ways. And so there really isn't a clear roadmap of what are the heavy hitters? What's the cost to taxpayers? And so we're developing that in-house to release that information to the public. And with that information that will guide our future litigation development in this space. That's exciting. Yeah. If, if you've ever got updates you wish to chat about, I'm, I'm here for it. So uh, it's nice and easy to jump on Zoom. And I suppose that's the bonus of not having uh, in-person conversations is because we can, we can do it pretty easily by using uh, platforms such as these. So yeah, you're, you're welcome on the show anytime. And uh, whether it's a, a 10 minute conversation or an hour conversation, uh, we'd love to hear of yeah the updates Uh, from your practice and what you continue to do awesome yeah that report is underway and i'll I'll certainly let you know when when we publish it and what our findings are sweet sweet so is there anything else that we should touch on with the usda case uh before moving on uh to the one that's i suppose pending uh with the university of Southern, southern california covered the bases i think we got a lot of detail in about the problem about the resolution moving into the second case so you studied at the university of southern california yep and i would love for you to explain you know what you've 
what you've been able to start and, and where you're currently at with this case? Yeah, so USC is my alma mater. My favorite professor at USC shared with me her favorite quote, which is speak truth to power. Um, and I'll never forget when she shared that with me. And so when I heard about what's happening at USC, I knew this is a case that I have to take, that advancing law for animals has to take. So um, to take a step back, our client, again, in this case is saying stop animal exploitation now. SANE has been monitoring the activity of USC for many years now. And what SANE has been able to investigate and discover is truly, truly disturbing violations of animal welfare laws. Now, it's important for your viewers to know that our lawsuit doesn't challenge activity taking place under an approved experiment. So our lawsuit is challenging all sorts of heinous mistreatment that don't have the excuse of being part of purported science. So for example, this lawsuit challenges things like putting live baby animals in a carcass disposal freezer and leaving them to slowly freeze to death instead of adhering to the euthanasia protocol in the scientific experiment. So again, these are actions that have nothing to do with research, have nothing to do with science. Um, we're talking about things like conducting unapproved surgical procedures, improperly withholding post-operative care, failing to euthanize in a timely manner. So leaving animals to languish and suffer with things like ulcerated tumors. So this is absolutely nasty and it's not an approved part of any scientific protocol. So that's what our client has investigated and discovered. He's blown the whistle, he's alerted the media, he's solicited, solicited investigations from local law enforcement. He spent a lot of time trying to discover, offset, and combat this illegal conduct. Um, yet this conduct is persisting. So California has something called the unfair competition law, which prohibits any competitive advantage through actions or omissions that are either illegal, unfair, or fraudulent. So that's the legal loophole uh, that we've hung our case on. We're saying that USC has a competitive advantage because it's saving money and profiting from the failure to implement welfare laws. Got it. So basically corner cutting at the expense of the lives of animals. It's got, got nothing it. to do with an actual experiment. You got it. It's absurd. It's crazy. I mean, you can imagine that if you don't have enough personnel and you don't have enough oversight, these sorts of awful things happen. Mm -hmm. You can also imagine that more personnel and more oversight is resource intensive. And I would like to add that USC does receive taxpayer subsidies for its work. And that is how this information has come to light. Because remember, we talked about the Freedom of Information Act earlier on. 
because USC is receiving taxpayer subsidies from the National Institutes of Health, our client is able to FOIA the National Institutes of Health and obtain correspondence detailing these truly horrific acts. When, when we're saying we're, we're using the Freedom of Information Act to obtain this information, this knowledge, who at USC or inspectors, uh, I'm just interested in, in who is writing about this, who is putting this into documentation so that we can learn about it? Great question. So to sort of uh, go full circle, earlier in our discussion, I shared that if you are receiving a taxpayer subsidy for animal experimentation, the National Institutes of Health requires, requires that you cough up and report your adverse events impacting animals. Now, it's not like the self-reporting incentive from the USDA. You don't get a special treat. It's simply, you're required to do that as a condition of the privilege of receiving taxpayer funds. Now, there's still even a problem with mandatory self-reporting that doesn't involve a corporate giveaway. And that problem is, how do you know if a facility is self-reporting all instances. And what is more disturbing is in the case of USC, the correspondence that our client obtained reveals the presence of an anonymous whistleblower. So it seems based on what we're seeing that not all of these adverse events were being reported and due to the courageous act of an anonymous person, more of this uh, abuse has come to light. That was going to be my next question. Like, although that there's no treat, there's no incentive to be self-reporting and it's required if you don't have an independent mm-hmm. inspector there all of the time, how the hell do you expect organization to self-report things that are going to obviously negatively impact maybe how much money they receive? Um, you know, the, the the regard that they're held within the community i don't know but it just seems it seems counterintuitive that you would think these organizations will freely give up all of all of the information correct and that's why shout out to our client shout out to stop animal exploitation now because it is requesting and combing through voluminous amounts of information for years trying to discover that which these laboratories are desperately trying to hide. Totally. So what, you know, you you mentioned that they have worked to get this into the media. What impact do the media play at this stage of a case? I think the media is key to shifting public perception and part of shifting public perception perception is education in the first place. Most people don't know that there's, for example, on average, 100,000 dogs and cats experimented on in the U.S. each year. A lot of people don't know that taxpayers are paying billions of dollars to support this work. A lot of people don't know that a world-renowned institution like USC is actually committing horrific welfare violations behind closed doors. So we don't know what we don't know. And the media helps us share information and 
and really resolve these issues because without public scrutiny, like you're saying, who the hell would know? Right. No, it feels like it feels it feels like if the public were privy to this information, if if this was readily readily available, if it was spoken about in mainstream media, the reaction of the public would be negative. I think at the core of our being, we're going to say that is wrong. Yeah, I think especially in this case, because the actions and omissions at issue in this case have nothing to do with science, right? This is absolutely gratuitous, useless suffering. It's not in furtherance of some academic pursuit. And so that at its core is troubling, I think, to any thinking, feeling person with a heart. Um, And that's why this case is important. And I do want to say this case has received media coverage, um, which is so nice that the media is interested in this. I think the coverage shows the interest. In fact, USC filed a motion to kick us out of court saying that our case was legally invalid and the judge ruled in our favor. And so we made headlines when the judge greenlit our case. And so um, we are proceeding. This case is active and pending. And with an active case, something that's pending, is there anything you're able to share and say like, you know, what you hope the outcome might be? Yeah, so I can share matters of public record. And so um, where we are in the litigation is this. We filed the lawsuit. USC tried to kick us out of court. The judge said, nope, this is a valid lawsuit. So we've moved on to what's called discovery. The discovery phase of litigation is when the parties get to ask each other questions and get to ask each other for documents. So we've asked USC for a lot of documents and we've asked USC a lot of questions. As you can imagine, there's a fight over what information are we entitled to. Um, Now this, we've been meeting and conferring over these discovery issues, COVID, imposed a lot of delay um, as it has in all cases pending in the country. But the bottom line is this, we are now before the judge, we have four different motions pending for the judge to weigh in and decide what information must be shared. Okay. And I was going to ask that it's, you know, it seems like there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of communication um, involved in a, in a lawsuit. In regular day-to-day pre-COVID, did this happen in person or, or did it happen by phone? Did it happen over video conferencing? And how has COVID changed uh, your life and your practice? So a lot of these conversations were happening telephonically, some in person, but court hearings are generally speaking in person. Parties have had the option to request to call in, but... I personally show up in person. My co-founder, co-director, he shows up in person. We believe in showing up in person and advocating for your client. That option is now off the table. Um, and then, of course, other changes, work from home life. We, you know, we're a very, we're a startup nonprofit. We have a, a small budget. A very modest office was a stretch for us. And with the COVID restrictions, you know, that expense didn't make sense. So we, we have switched to working from home. Got it. Have you, 
you know, it's been a year and a bit. Have you found it to be overwhelmingly more positive, negative, somewhere in between? You know, I think like all things in life, there's pros and cons. Right. And yep. so I think we're all navigating the pros and cons right now. One pro is the the Zoom space. It looks great. I'm liking the frames in, in the background. Thank you. I've yes, checked. you can see where's our, there's our USC media hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another one. So yeah, we. Um, it's great that this case has received public attention and media interest. Yeah, I've checked out all of the articles, I think, that are behind you. And it was funny. I was on... It was one of the links you sent me that uh, was directly from a, a Missouri news source. Mm-hmm. And I was reading the article, got to the end of it. And in the suggested articles below were two separate animal related oh. news articles. Awesome. So one was, uh, they weren't great. I mean, one was about hunting black bears in Missouri. And apparently oh. it's the first time they were going to be doing it for a, uh, for a long time and the other one was um, it was pig related and I just thought yeah it's crazy that it just keeps I suppose it's never ending the never ending. the work we have to do is is definitely never ending so it was really cool to cover some cases uh, that are you know one's live one's done and and to see uh, what outcomes are possible and yeah, I'd love to hear follow up on what happens with the one at USC. What what do you see in the future of your practice uh, in terms of maybe growth, uh, different areas that you would operate in? You know, have you have you got any plans for the future? Um, yeah, so we are unique in that our practice focuses on issues impacting animals in experimentation, as well as animals in industrial food production. So we have this narrow dual focus. Um, And so we have this commitment because we feel that these kinds of animals are most underserved. Um, Companion animal issue, wildlife issues, uh, animals in exhibition, generally speaking, have greater representation among advocacy groups. So we have this narrow focus. Um, and it's, you know, we are, um, we're, we're a startup nonprofit law firm. It's our commitment to exist no matter what in any way, um, in, in any scale that we can, you know, it's been a journey to get here. I, I self-funded my first year of participation in this, um, in this journey. So we hope to continue at a higher and higher scale with a higher and higher volume. Right now we're limited to our own person power. Cool. And what would you, I mean, what would you recommend to people that are currently practicing law or they're uh, studying law? And this is something that they, you know, have their eyes on, or now they've listened to you. They've heard you speak and thought, wow, this is something that I could potentially see myself doing. Is there anything you've learned along the way that maybe would have fast tracked uh, your, you know, your learning or something that you think would have really helped along the way to becoming an animal lawyer? What would you recommend to those people that are out there looking to get into it? I would say myself personally, I thought that I needed animal law experience, but you don't. 
you need, if you're a strong litigator, you're a strong litigator. That translates to any field of law. Our lawsuit against the USDA, for example, that involves something called the Administrative Procedures Act. I did not take administrative law in law school. I had no prior experience dealing with the APA, yet we had this tremendous victory. And why is that? If you have strong skills, you can apply them broadly. Um, so I would say um, be confident, do new things, challenge yourself and get comfortable creatively applying the skills that you have. Yeah, I, I love that. And did it take, I suppose, on that creative note, did it take some, you know, some brainstorming on how to tackle the USC case? Because it, it, it's, it seems interesting that, as I said earlier, the, the competition route is the, is the way in here to say like, look, these guys are unfairly gaining advantage. This is the route we're going to take. Like, was it something that just came to mind immediately or is this something that you brainstorm uh, between uh, you and your workers? So the USC case was simpler because the unfair competition law is something that I've used time and time again as a consumer protection attorney. I will say our USDA case, that was very challenging case theory development because all I knew was our client called, we sat on the phone for an hour and we heard about a huge, huge, huge problem. We got off the phone and then on our end, we went down a several week long legal research vortex to figure out how can we, hand, how can we handle this problem and it turned out to be challenging the rule on a technicality. And so you definitely do need to get creative, but that's actually my favorite part of practicing law. Nice, nice. And how do you, how do you stay positive when, you know, as an advocate, as a vegan, how do you continue to stay positive just as a human being when you are living, you know, living through, these cases and you were immersed in the information that you're privy to, how do you, how do you stay positive? Great question. It's really, it's really hard. I'll say this. I spent many years of my life being very cynical and very negative. I then realized, Hmm, I've spent so much time being cynical and negative. I don't think that's got me to a good place. Let me try being positive. <laughs> um, so it's a lot of, for me, it takes active behavior to remain positive, to self-care, to be mindful. I really focus on, okay, I'm going to wake up and do my best today and leave it at that. All I can do is my best every day. Seeing how the small changes really do matter. Does that take some work to, to be like, all right, you know, this change here might not seem grand um, on, a, on a, you know, on face value, but yeah. really, you know, it, it was super important. And I am proud of being a part of that. Did that take some work in, in terms of adjusting your mindset? It does, because let me tell you, perceptions of change and perceptions of the value of change are very, very subjective. And so I think if we line up 10 people and we ask them, 
how useful do you think a media hit is? They may all say something different, right? And so I think at the end of the day, my journey on this planet for myself is self-validation and not seeking validation from others. And this comes back to, I wake up and I try my best. And at the end of the day, I go to sleep and, and that's it. That's all I can do on this planet is wake up and try my best and just focus on that. Beautiful. As now I've been vegan almost 14 years, seeing what's happened in plant-based food, it can't not inspire you. Like it is shocking what I ate 10 years ago versus what I get to eat today. That change in and of itself is awe-inspiring because I would have never thought, you know, cranky, cynical old me 14 years ago that here we would be today. On top of it, I have celiac disease, so I'm also gluten-free. The vegan gluten-free world right now is like, um, um, it's amazing. Yeah, you've you've lived it, you, you've witnessed it. It is, I mean, I think we've we've been uh, vegan for, for five years. And in that time, things like, you know, the Beyond Burger weren't available. The Impossible right. Burger weren't available and they were right. kind of a myth. And when are they going to become, you know, uh, right. available at restaurants, Whole Foods, and then it lands and, you know, I think it's taken off from there, but 14 years, I don't know. That's, that's kind of hard to imagine. Tofu probably would have been a, a delicacy. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. So I, I have to say that does uplift my attitude and my ability to recognize like things are, things are changing. It may be small, but I feel like inch by inch, everything's a cinch. We all do our best every day. And that's where we are. How about community and, and family? Are they playing a big part as well in, in keeping your sanity? Yeah. I mean, shout out to my mom because when advancing law for animals started, we did not, you know, we did not get seed funding. There was no large grant to help us get started. Um, it was really self-funded. And I think, like I said, I was at a great firm doing great work under great partners to leave. That was very scary, especially to leave that for an organization with zero dollars. And I myself had no fundraising or grant writing experience and I had no experience in nonprofit governance. So one, one could look at that and think that is just insane. And one could look at that and think you're onto something. And so in those early days, I was regularly talking to my mom, like, am I insane or am I onto something? And shout out to my mom. Cause my mom kept saying, I think you're onto something. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, positive feedback goes a long way in, yeah. in, in keep and having those people to rely on. I think, you know, if you are having a dark day to be able to yeah. rely on someone close like your mom, I think that is invaluable. So yeah. Shout out to your mom. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think teamwork makes the dream work. I didn't, I had never done press releases. I had never sought media. Um, so I definitely have had friends in my network who have got on the phone with me. Here's how you write a press release. Here's who I think you should contact. Oh, you should meet this person. Oh, why don't you talk to that person? And so I truly believe nothing is possible alone. And I, I think it's so important to be open. Um, to your community because it's amazing what we can all do when we elevate each other. Totally. Are there any platforms 
social media wise that have helped you or that you enjoy in your work? You mean in terms of getting information or people networking information? Has there been any social media platforms that are helpful? So I think Instagram is super helpful. So social media, you know, let's back up for a second. Social media has a lot of challenges and poses a lot of public policy concerns. At the same time, it is incredibly connecting. You and I are on Zoom right now because of Instagram. We connected through Instagram. A lot of uh, law clerks that we've had in the past reached out to me through Instagram or heard of Advancing Law for Animals through Instagram. So I do think that, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. There's a lot of problems with social media, but the benefit is we can all share information and contact each other. Yeah. I think when used positively, it's uh, it's an awesome tool. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched that exactly what you said. I'm psyched about being able to contact people that I wouldn't otherwise have met, right. uh, you know, whether you're in California or the UK or wherever it might be, uh, these opportunities to chat are awesome. And I love sharing stories such as, such as yours. Thank you. In, in wrapping up the conversation, Vanessa, I'd, um, I'd love to know where we can learn more about uh, your practice, uh, yourself, and how we might be able to help. Thank you. Well, Advancing Law for Animals is on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. So I would super appreciate anyone out there giving this a listen to go and follow or subscribe to increase our platform and also to stay apprised of our work. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to staying in the loop. Uh, I'll um, I'll definitely be checking your page uh, regularly, you. and I'm I'm now invested in in this USC case. I want to see where it awesome. where it goes and and ends up. Are we able to to donate to you know either your organization or or different organizations that you work closely with? Oh, that's so kind of you to ask. So, Advancing Law for Animals is a 501c3. If you go to our website, advancinglawforanimals.org, you can make a tax deductible donation to our litigation fund that keeps the lights on. That makes this work possible. Cool. Let's keep the lights on. Yeah. Like yeah. We're coming out with merch soon. So oh, sweet. stay tuned. Yeah. Very nice. Well, it's it's been really awesome to chat with you and I really do appreciate uh, your willingness to, to help someone like myself really understand um, what you're, what you're doing. I think with, with the lingo in law, it can get a little bit over my head at least, and uh, sometimes hard to follow. So uh, I've enjoyed really understanding uh, what you're doing uh, at advancing law for animals and the cases that you've participated in. So uh, appreciate you coming on the show and, and taking time to chat with me. Yeah, I can't wait to message you when we resolve our next case. Yeah, please keep me updated any in any way, uh, shape or form. Uh, as you said, Instagram's nice and easy. And um, yeah, yeah, please, please keep, keep us updated. And I'd be happy to have you back on the show at any time. Oh, can't wait. Thank you. Cheers, Vanessa. Have a good day. And we'll, we'll chat to you soon. Bye. That is all, folks. Thanks again for tuning in today. I hope you were able to learn a thing or two in our conversation with Vanessa today. 
She has created something incredible with Advancing Law for Animals, so please spread the word and follow them on social media. And if possible, please make a donation through their website at advancinglawforanimals.org. We look forward to having Vanessa back on the show in the future with updates and more news on how the law is being progressed to help the lives of animals in the United States and around the world. As you might have heard during our conversation today, next week we will be delving into the topic of subsidies and how our money is being used to further exploit the lives of animals. I can't wait to learn more on this topic and share it with you all next week. Until then, keep it plant-based. Talk to you all soon.